0: hello and welcome to the meningitis foundation new zealand podcast providing you with information about meningitis and septicemia and the diseases that cause them pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease today i'm speaking with dr tony smith Dr. Smith is a medical director for St. John in New Zealand. He's also an adult intensive care medicine specialist at Auckland City Hospital and previously held this position at Middlemore Hospital. At St. John, Tony chairs the working group that develops the clinical procedures and guidelines for the ambulance sector in New Zealand, and he oversees all of the clinical aspects of St. John activities in New Zealand, including the ambulance service. He has an active involvement in pre-hospital research with a focus on collaborative approach to contributing to multi-centre trials. He's a member of the Helicopter Emergency Medical Service in Auckland and has a very active hands-on role in pre-hospital care. Dr Smith, it's my pleasure to speak with you today, so thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Over the years as an intensive care specialist, I understand you've seen a significant number of patients with meningitis and or septicemia particularly at Middlemore over the time of one of the outbreaks or epidemics in the late 90s. Can you tell me a little bit about that and the experiences that you've had with this group of diseases?
1: Yes, I was a very junior intensive care specialist in the late 90s. I graduated in 1996. I was originally planning to um, travel overseas uh, and get a job in Australia and at short notice a job came up in Middlemore Hospital in the intensive care unit there which was a mixed adult and paediatric or child intensive care unit. So I was very new. I was the new boy or kid on the block. Uh, and it unfortunately coincided with a, a peak, really, for New Zealand, of an epidemic of particularly meningococcal septicemia. And we were seeing, uh, at Middlemore alone, two to three desperately ill children a week. And unfortunately, a large number of those children um, died from from the disease, and it was a, it was a truly tragic time, not only for New Zealand, but in particular for Auckland, where the epidemic seemed seemed to be centred, and particularly for Middlemore, where we saw a very large number of cases, and and it will be forever etched in my mind.
0: Now you mentioned that you have worked specifically with adult intensive care over the course of your career, but you, you've mentioned that you saw a lot of childhood cases come through at that time. That must have been devastating.
1: Yes, I think, um, well, not I think, meningococcal septicemia is always devastating. Uh, and it, uh, although it can um, affect anybody of any age, indeed I've seen it affect elderly people, it predominantly affects young adults uh, and children. And I think whenever any young adult or young child is struck down With a devastating illness, with a very high mortality rate, that's always tragic for everybody involved, all the way from the family through to the the people who are looking after that child.
0: And you're seeing it at the front line, so you're seeing every range of symptoms as well. Is there? There's there's no one symptom that stands out in your mind more than any others?
1: No, that's absolutely right. Um particularly meningococcal septicemia, which is where the infection is in the bloodstream, is one one of the most difficult to diagnose illnesses I think that there is. And even for very experienced practitioners, in the early phases, differentiating or determining between someone who has influenza or some other form of viral illness from someone who has the early onset of meningococcal septicemia is, in my mind, virtually impossible.
0: So and, it's, what stage, and it's every
1: clinician's worst nightmare.
0: And at what stage in assessing a patient do you have that thought in the back of your mind that this could be meningitis?
1: Well, I think, I think for someone like me who ends up seeing patients who are sick enough to get into the intensive care unit it's kind of always in your mind. So it's always in the list of possibilities. But in that same list of possibilities are 100 or 200 other potential conditions, N- uh, none of which, apart from trauma, for example, suddenly being involved in a car crash, none of which can take a healthy, normal human being and kill them so quickly as can meningococcal septicemia and there is, in my experience, no other illness that a person can go from being well in the morning to being dead in the evening. Um, there is, there is no there, Trauma can do that, but there is no other medical illness that can do that in the way that meningococcal septicemia can.
0: And that's the harsh reality of the disease, isn't
1: it? It is, it is a truly um, tragic disease.
0: When some of the families that we've spoken to have talked about their loved ones going into a coma, is that an induced coma that you bring on?
1: Usually. So it is possible if, uh, so coma is just a word for being unconscious, and it is possible if you're very sick to become unconscious, but it's more common that if you're very sick and you're coming into a hospital and then going to an intensive care unit, it's more common that we need to place the patient onto a ventilator or a breathing machine to do the breathing for the patient. And in order to do that, you need to give the patient an anaesthetic so that they're asleep, and often that's interpreted as the patient being in a coma or induced coma. But in reality, what we have done is we have anaesthetised the patient in order to facilitate the uh, placement of onto a breathing machine or a ventilator, but also the placement of a number of what we call lines, which are essentially pieces of plastic that go into major blood vessels in the body in order to be able to both monitor the patient, but also to treat the patient. And that usually, if you're very, very sick, that usually requires a general anesthetic, which in and of itself, if you're desperately unwell, is a very challenging thing to do.
0: And a number of our families have spoken about um, as as the disease has progressed and they've got sicker and sicker, that the reaction is to almost fight. And that primal instinct comes out, which is, is trying to push everyone away from them and, and not allow the medical professionals to do their job. Is that a very common behaviour?
1: Agitation is common. So, um, the development of agitation is very common in a number of illnesses, not just meningococcal septicemia. And it is a common during that time. It's it's a No one really knows why it happens, uh, but it's something that's going on inside the brain and it's multifactorial, but it results in the patient being confused. And as part of that confusion, it commonly results in the patient not cooperating with treatment. And so pushing people away, uh, trying to pull oxygen masks off, trying to remove any lines which have been placed. And often, an anaesthetic is required to make that patient or keep that patient safe.
0: And for those who survive the disease, there are a series of long-term implications that can affect them. Can you talk us through some of the ones that you've seen or some of the most common outcomes for patients?
1: Yes, and in, in, in my role, once the patient leaves the intensive care unit, I um, usually don't have any involvement with the ongoing care of the patient, so I'm not an an expert in the long-term implications of the disease. But part of the body's immune response to particularly the meningococcal bacteria, but it also happens with other bacteria as well, part of that response leads to clotting within the body. And that clotting happens in blood vessels throughout the body, but we see it most easily in the skin. And that clotting results in blood vessels becoming blocked. And then the tissue which is supplied by that blood vessel losing its blood supply. And in the skin, we see that as little blue spots, often referred to as a rash, but it's not a rash. It's quite different from a rash. It's like small small bruises under the skin, the medical term for it is petechiae, but essentially they're very small bruises, like the, the size of the tip of the pen, and they can expand and, and become larger, in which case they're, they're then called purpura, but essentially a purpura is just a very large bruise. And that process is going on in every single organ of the body. We just see it in the skin, but it can particularly affect muscle, and then that muscle can lose its blood supply. And that can result in patients losing fingers, toes, and in some circumstances, losing entire limbs. Uh, And uh, I, I will never forget one young patient who survived, who ended up needing both arms amputated from just below the forearm and both legs amputated above the knee because of loss of blood supply to her limbs as a result of the disease process. Now, because that process affects every organ in the body, they can also be left with long-term damage to organs, such as, for example, kidneys, which can lose their blood supply from the, from the immune response to the bacteria.
0: We receive a lot of information or a lot of requests from patients for post-discharge support and particularly for support like a, a major brain trauma or a brain injury. Can you tell us a little bit how about how the disease affects the brain and the long-term consequences there?
1: Yes, so in the way that meningococcal septicemia can cause widespread clotting within blood vessels, that can also affect the brain. And essentially, that's like having a small stroke. And so part of the brain loses its blood supply um, and that piece of brain never comes back. That piece of brain is dead forever. Other areas of the brain can t- help take over the, f- the function of that area of brain. We don't really understand how that happens. Uh, and that's why patients with a stroke can go on to get recovery afterwards. And the same process can happen with meningococcal septicemia. Um. There are also a group of patients with meningitis, which is a, it's a different disease process to meningococcal septicemia. Meningococcal septicemia, the bacteria is in the blood. Meningitis, the bacteria is in the lining of the brain. And if the lining of the brain becomes infected, the brain itself can become infected. So meningitis comes from meninges, which is the which is the membrane layer of the brain, and just means inflammation. So arthritis, inflammation of joints, meningitis, inflammation of the meninges. And particularly those patients, and this is particularly children with meningitis, can be left with long-term brain damage, and impaired hearing or deafness is um, probably one of the most common. Because I'm no longer involved in paediatric intensive care, i don't get to see those children, those young children in New Zealand with meningitis.
0: Now, you have spent a fair number of years as an adult intensive care specialist and at a number of different hospitals around Auckland. Can you tell us, on average, you know, how many cases of meningitis or meningococcal septicemia that you would see in a 12-month period?
1: So currently, currently I'm working at Auckland City Hospital. Uh, where I've been since uh, the early 2000s, we would see a case of meningitis uh, in our adult intensive care unit probably every month or so, so about 12 to perhaps 14 patients a year. Um, Small numbers when you think that we're admitting around 1,500 patients to our intensive care unit every year. Obviously, there are patients that come into hospital with meningitis that don't end up in intensive care, and not all of the patients that we have with meningitis have meningococcal meningitis, because meningitis can be caused by viruses, and it can be caused by a number of bacteria other than meningococcal, the meningococcal bacteria. So we see about 12, perhaps to 14 patients a year with meningitis, and we see a much smaller number with meningococcal septicemia. Fortunately, the numbers that we were seeing in the late 1990s, we're no longer seeing, but we still do see probably between three and six patients a year who um, come into the hospital with meningococcal septicemia and are sick enough to need to come to the intensive care unit. Mm. And unfortunately, despite all of the things that we can do, it continues to have a very high mortality rate.
0: We've seen most recently another outbreak of meningococcal B and then meningococcal W in December 2018 in Northland region, and that was actually declared an epidemic and an immunisation programme launched for 4 to 19-year-olds. Can you tell me in your view whether we are effectively dealing with meningococcal disease um, through those responses?
1: Sure. I, I'm a absolutely big supporter of immunisation, not just for meningococcal disease, but, but across the board. But I'm not an expert in the area of immunisation, and so I couldn't comment on whether it's being effective. C- certainly, we've seen... Um, a reduction in the number of patients presenting with meningococcal disease or meningococcal infection. And I know that the group of people in the Ministry of Health that oversee immunisation, who are of course also very pro-immunisation, spend a lot of time trying to determine the best way of delivering that immunisation to the population. And that's a balance of the risk factors for the disease the effectiveness of the vaccine, but also the availability of the vaccine, because there isn't always a sufficient vaccine to vaccinate everybody in New Zealand. And so the decision to vaccinate is a balance of risk decision based on all of those things.
0: Mm. It's a, It really is a balancing act, isn't it, it, is. it when you talk about it numbers a, in that respect?
1: I, I, I think a very difficult balancing act.
0: Mm-hmm. And then also looking at um, all of the other factors that go into making a decision around whether a vaccine is funded or not in New Zealand for this case. The burden of disease, do you know whether we've ever looked at the cost implications of the the long-term effects of the disease and what that means in so far as uh, time out of the workforce for that person, for the family, for rehabilitation services, the cost of treatment in hospitals as well?
1: Certainly, I think, again, that group of people that oversee vaccination within New Zealand take all of that into account. Mm -hmm. But I'm not aware of a published study in New Zealand which has specifically looked at the factors that you've talked about. For example, time lost from work and time involved, or time and cost involved of rehabilitation. That work may well have been done, but I don't recall having seen that published.
0: In the work that you do with St John Ambulance, I know that you've said that you focus on a lot of the pre-hospital guidelines. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that means and specifically whether that is addressing any of the pre-hospital guidelines for meningococcal or meningitis?
1: Sure. So within New Zealand, ambulance services are provided by two ambulance services. There's um, St John Ambulance and Wellington Free Ambulance. There are additional providers that provide Um, helicopters, but in terms of road ambulance, there are two road ambulance providers in New Zealand. And many years ago, many, many years ago, we decided that we would develop one set of clinical procedures and guidelines. Those are the guidelines that the ambulance personnel use when they're assessing and treating patients, that we would develop one set of guidelines for New Zealand because it didn't make sense to have two. And so we have a what's called a working group. It's essentially a group of clinicians, both doctors, but also ambulance personnel from both organisations who get together regularly to review and develop the procedures that our ambulance personnel use. And we formally re-update those and re-issue those every two years. Indeed, we've just finished that process. And within those guidelines is everything from brain injury through to stroke. And one of them is a guideline on meningococcal septicemia. And within that guideline, we talk about the diagnosis, we've, as we've previously talked, how difficult that diagnosis can be, particularly in the out-of-hospital setting, particularly if the patient has early, um, is early in their illness, when often it's impossible to differentiate from a viral illness. But having made the diagnosis, we're having... Um, Having come to the conclusion that you think this patient may have meningococcal septicemia, we then have a very clear guideline that involves administration of antibiotics, um, specifically the antibiotic Keftriaxone, to the patient. And every ambulance in New Zealand carries Keftriaxone. We also have um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, a doctor who's on call for the ambulance service and ambulance personnel who are uncertain or need advice can call a central desk within our communication centre. That central desk is manned by very senior um, ambulance personnel and if they then need to put the call through to the on-call doctor, they will put the call through and, and we can talk. We currently don't have the ability to be able to see the patient, but we're looking at developing within New Zealand um, communication devices within the ambulance, which would actually then enable us to see the patient. So, so this is could- the
0: person at the other end of the phone yes. having yeah. some type of visual yeah. communication.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, particularly show me the spots, because it's mm. quite common to have um, viral illness, very commonly is associated with rash, very common. And so it's quite common for a child or a patient to present to ambulance personnel with what sounds like a viral illness um, and some rash. And of course, that always raises the possibility of meningococcal septicemia. And someone describing the rash to you over the phone is just never the same as being able to see it. Uh, And, you know, it it is the, the spots of meningococcal septicemia are very different from the rash which is frequently associated with a viral illness. So so across New Zealand, we have um, a, a procedure for ambulance personnel for meningococcal septicemia. It doesn't get used very often, uh, but you know we think it has the potential to save lives, and that's the reason that it's there.
0: And then taking those patients into hospitals... Are there guidelines that carry through all the the different areas of care for that patient, or do those vary from DHB to DHB?
1: They they have, they vary from DHB to DHB, but the principles are pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having worked, I obviously, haven't worked in all DHBs in New Zealand, but I, I've I've worked in um, in a number, particularly in Auckland. Uh, and in my role, I'm frequently talking to intensive care specialists around the country. And there are some differences, but those differences are very subtle.
0: Right. And as far as being able to lead the charge with those pre-hospital guidelines, does that uh, cover the use of antibiotics in GP practices or purely just the ambulance service?
1: It's just within the ambulance service, so mm-hmm. we don't cover Um, general practitioners. We do, however, make our clinical procedures and guidelines freely available to anybody who wants them, and that includes general practitioners. And we know that a number of general practitioners have taken up that offer. Um, And that, so that means that if they're faced with an emergency in their general practice that they haven't dealt with for a very long time, they can go straight to our clinical procedures and guidelines and it will give them a very straightforward flow chart on the way that we in the ambulance service would treat that patient and they're free to use that if they wish. We also have an app uh, which goes obviously on the phone. Uh, So we have an app which mirrors our clinical procedures and guidelines, and we also make that app freely available to any medical or nursing staff throughout the country who ask for it.
0: Brilliant. And how important to the patient's outcome is that early administration of antibiotics?
1: We think it's important, And, and when I say that, there are no studies of early administration versus late administration because nobody is going to do that study. It would be like doing a study of parachute versus no parachute because having made the diagnosis, we think that the timing of antibiotics is very important. And certainly when we look at delayed or patients who've had delayed administration of antibiotics, they appear to have a much higher mortality rate, a higher chance of dying than patients that have had early antibiotic administration. But, but the difficulty interpreting that data is that delayed antibiotic administration is also coupled with delayed diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And we know that delayed diagnosis is associated with a higher mortality rate. And what we don't know is that the delayed diagnosis or the delayed treatment that invariably goes with delayed diagnosis, and probably it's a bit of both. So our current view, and this view is right across health, is that if you believe the patient has meningococcal septicemia or you believe they're likely to have meningococcal septicemia, one of the first steps is to administer antibiotics, not not orally, not, sorry, not by mouth, mm-hmm. um, but either directly into a vein or directly into a muscle.
0: And the antibiotic that you mentioned, is that specific to this particular type of disease?
1: No, it's not. So Keftriaxone is a fairly common antibiotic, which is um, used predominantly in hospital across New Zealand. It's used for a range of conditions, but it has very good coverage of the meningococcal bacteria. Uh, It's easy to administer. It has a relatively low allergy rate, so there's a very low incidence, but not zero, of patients who are allergic to it, and it's well absorbed when given into a muscle. And so for all of those reasons, and one other reason, it also penetrates the brain. So if the patient has, and then we do see a small number of patients that have it both in their bloodstream, but also inside their brain, so mm-hmm. they have both meningococcal septicemia and meningococcal meningitis, then Keftrioxone is a good choice. It's not the only antibiotic which kills the meningococcal bacteria, but it's a good choice for the out-of-hospital setting.
0: Mm-hmm. And obviously with the development of these guidelines goes hand-in-hand hand with training of all of your personnel as well. How how many people are up to speed on on what's happening with meningitis and meningococcal septicemia? Is everyone receiving training across all both of those ambulance services?
1: Yes, we, we have, um, as part of the training, we have training in, in, um, in, first of all, the detection of patients with infection uh, and and the treatment of patients with infection, and particularly for those patients that are very sick with infection, the term which is commonly used is septic shock, and that's usually when the bacteria has got into the bloodstream and has made the person, person or the patient very unwell. And we have specific training in meningococcal septicemia but like all of the things that we treat um, our staff need to be up to date with all of the things so so for example stroke and the treatment of stroke so for example the treatment of patients that have been involved in a car crash and so so yes we have training in meningococcal septicemia but it's also in proportion to, the other things which we have to deal with. And meningococcal septicemia is uncommon. It's very uncommon. So yes, we do have training in it, but we try to keep the training in proportion to the importance of the disease. In this case, meningococcal septicemia is uncommon, but recognizing it early and treating it early is important because it is is one of the, infections with a very, very high mortality rate.
0: So that's really one of the key messages, isn't it? It's not just to the families that may suspect that their child or family member is sick, but to seek early medical intervention and, and act on the, those concerns as quickly as possible because the earlier the diagnosis, the earlier the treatment, the better the outcome.
1: Yes, this is one of those areas which is really difficult. And it's really difficult because around New Zealand every day, there are hundreds and in winter thousands and thousands of patients with a viral illness. And the vast majority, over 99%, are going to have a viral illness. And then a small proportion, approximately 1%, have another illness going on which is presenting in its initial phases like a viral illness, and then a small proportion of those patients will have meningococcal septicemia. And it's really difficult. It's really difficult because on one hand, we don't want everybody with a viral illness to go rushing off to their GP, or certainly don't want them going rushing off to hospital. But on the other hand, we do want to see the small subgroup of patients that are really sick. And there's no golden rule or no golden list of things. I could say, if you had this, you need to go, go see somebody. The the advice that I would provide to people is to say, if you or your family member is sicker than you think they should be for having a, a viral illness, that's the trigger. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of no, you know, one thing. I would just say, because we all have experienced viral illness and we've all, it's very hard when you're a brand new parent and I certainly remember our first child and they get their first febrile illness and you, you just don't know what to expect. But after a while, you start to know your child. And the advice I would give is that if at any point they seem sicker than they should be for the illness, that's when I would seek advice. And within New Zealand, that advice can be over the phone. So we have Healthline, Mm -hmm. which is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, provides a great service. And even if you're just not sure, can often provide some reassurance that things are okay. And then obviously we have um, face-to-face. So I'm either through, preferably through a GP or a practice nurse. But, you know, in some areas of the country, particularly after hours, there isn't always a GP that people can get into after hours. And I would say if you're really worried seek a face-to-face assessment, either at a GP practice or at a um, hospital emergency department.
0: Brilliant. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being here today and sharing not just your knowledge and insights, but your experience and expertise with us. Thank you. This is part of a series of podcast episodes by the Meningitis Foundation to raise awareness of meningitis septicemia, pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease. You can find more information about meningitis or any of the diseases on our website at www.meningitis.org.nz or head to our Facebook page. Just type in the Meningitis Foundation and you should be able to find us. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode. Bye for now.